Hello all and welcome to your weekly tech news hour. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. Each time we meet, we discuss, digress, and sometimes uh, digest the technology news of the week in under 60 minutes. That's my promise to you. That's my oath. And uh, there are various policies at WRUW here that really make it impossible for me to go over that by any substantial margin. So, responsible policymaking radio station. Huzzah! Let's fade down the music. We got a jam-packed week full of news. A lot of big, uh, I'm not going to lie, we got some We got some government stuff. We got some regulatory stuff. I guess we'll get it started out. Not necessarily a change in policy, but maybe some clarification that we've received. Uh, Facebook had an interesting week uh, in the past uh, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of last week. They uh, were on Capitol Hill. Uh, they had uh, David Marcus, who's kind of heading up their whole Libra cryptocurrency thing, uh, Pro- uh, uh, um, not proposing, he was presenting, testifying is the word that I wanted to use and I am using now, testifying for the U.S. Uh, Senate and House, um, kind of answering some questions there. And I thought this was going to be pure political theater. I thought there would be a lot of grandstanding. Weirdly, Facebook is in a space now, or maybe Congress is in a space now, I don't know which has changed more, where there is no one that's particularly receptive to Facebook on Capitol Hill, I would say 10 years ago, maybe Democrats are a little bit more um, technocratic, are a little bit more into the whole Internet thing and maybe would be not openly, not necessarily, you know, placate Facebook or something like that, but not be openly hostile. Um, Or maybe you can make the argument that, okay, some, you know, some, um, you know, uh, business focused Republicans would be like, well, the, the market will regulate privacy, blah, blah, blah. Um, no one seems to like Facebook, which is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but kind of op- walking into a hostile workplace. So I thought this would be, you know, you'd have senators standing up and going like, why did like just saying Cambridge Analytica like 50 times? Right. Or just or just going like, why can't I post a video with music in it? That's not fair. So just like useless, not not adding to the conversation around a very complex to- topic, which involves monetary policy, which involves Cryptocurrency itself, which I, I I have to imagine so many staffers on the Hill had to like keep going over. Yeah, like, yes, it's a distributed ledger. Yes, like it's not you can't like print one. They're not going to give you a physical coin. Grandpa senator or grandma senator or father senator. I don't want to be ageist here. They, I would just say on average, they you know, they tend to be in a, a grandfatherly or grandparently demographic. That's all I'm saying. But anyway, David Marcus was on the Hill and there was actually some meaningful uh, conversations going back and forth. Uh, clearly, some of the senators and some of the uh, uh, Congress people did a lot of homework, uh, which is kind of good to see. A lot of the conversations centered around what's going to be the relationship between Libra, which is like an open source association and is more of a standards body that has many members, and Calibra, which is awesome that they named it very close and just makes it sound like you mispronounce Libra somehow. Um that is going to be a Facebook-run like business subsidiary, right? And so the, the difference here is that the Libra Association is going to be kind of what's rolling out the standard that will become this cryptocurrency. And that is not something that's going to be purely Facebook-driven. In fact, they're setting it up so that they will be one of many people in that association, presumably with not an outsized influence. It's not like Facebook bought up all the shares of the Libra Association or something like that. Basically... If you pay a certain amount of money and you host a node on the Libra network, you have a like one vote in the association. 
So right now there are 28 announced members, although notably no one has actually paid like paid money to kind of enter into this association. It's very speculative at this point. I think a lot of people wanted to get in there before um, it just just kind of as a precaution in case this thing takes off like Visa and MasterCard are in the Libra Association or announced as partners for the Libra Association. Clearly, they have a vested interest in being, hey, if someone's going to replace money or 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 have some sort of meaningful status as a as a means of transacting like Visa and MasterCard kind of want to be on board with that and have a say in how that is implemented. Right. They have a, they have a very specific business interest in that. And so you have 28 announced members. I think Facebook wants as as an, has said that they want 100 members ideally and facebook would be one of those members so they would have one vote theoretically out of 100 they have one vote out of 28 right now so they don't have a outsized influence of that and that was kind of marcus's point um he has actually a direct quote that you will not have to trust facebook which is like a sweet selling point (laughs) it tells you where facebook is in 2019 but basically saying that they're 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 going to have one vote out of many so libra as it is laid out right now is kind of facebook's vision of it once it gets into the association and it has a just a small minority of the votes and the decision-making power of that association. That may change uh, fairly substantially, although we don't we don't know until they start actually like working on this. This is all very speculative. This is the, the other weird thing about Libra is everyone is like super upset. They want Facebook to stop development on it, but nothing works right now, and it's it's more just a series of white papers, which I'm sure a lot of code behind it. But there hasn't been a lot of things for people to actually like implement or look at or, or tool sets and that kind of stuff to kind of have people test out there. So that's what's kind of in a weird space right now. Uh, but that was the big thing. Uh, Marcus wanted to go, hey, you don't have to trust Facebook. We're designing it so you don't have to trust Facebook. What you do kind of have to trust, though, is this whole Calibra thing. So Calibra is kind of the uh, – it, it's generally turned to as a wallet and cryptocurrency. So this will be the thing that holds this cryptocurrency and that you can use as a store to send it places and, and that kind of stuff. There will be any number of wallets. It's an open spec, so anyone can develop a wallet for it. Calibra is just Facebook's version of that, right? You following me so far? You have your pencils out? Um, that They will have a significant advantage, though, in that, in that they, will be, they will be the only ones to have that integrated into their messaging platforms, right? So if you want to send money on Facebook Messenger, on uh, uh, WhatsApp, things that you send WhatsApps on, uh, I'm an old man, Instagram, Messenger, whatever – that will all be rolled in there. So if you want to send money to someone on those platforms, that will be an option. It will not be the only thing. And in fact, Marcus was very careful to say that, uh, saying that um, there, there will be all sorts of other, they, they will maintain their existing partnerships, allowing you to use credit cards or other mediums to send on uh, payments with, on those platforms. So you're not, Facebook isn't locking you in and kind of forcing people to use it. But, you know, having 2 billion users and each one of those platforms, WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, each has over a billion uh, daily active users on there, you know, that does give Calibra a certain amount of staying power, a certain amount of of, of power. The, the other thing that he was saying, and that was that was kind of his answer to the question some of the senators were asking, you know, how do we know what Facebook is going to do with the payment information that goes through that wallet, right? Because they're not going to have any special visibility into Libra itself, although a blockchain is kind of by nature... You, the, like the whole point of it is it's a distributed ledger, right? So theoretically, you can go in and look at the transactions. They won't make any sense. They're not really human readable. Like I, you just can't go in and be like, oh, John sent something to Susie and they sent him five coins or whatever like that. That's not how that works. But you will be able to see this address sent something to this address. Theoretically, you could look up what those addresses represent and and kind of follow the transactions that way. So Libra in and of itself, cryptocurrency generally is somewhat transparent. There are 
very simple. As, as always, anything you say about cryptocurrency, there's like 50 projects that do it differently and make me wrong. So I appreciate that. The other thing, but, but his question about how will Facebook use that transaction data and, and what kind of privacy or transparency or whatever you're going to have with that once it's in that wallet, right? Because once it's in that wallet, it's a totally different beast, right? It's kind of closed off, right? So his answer to that was, well, you can use other things if you don't trust Facebook, which is like, again, like he's keeping a real, but also not the best answer, although acknowledging, I guess, the reality that no one does trust Facebook. The other thing that kind of got him into some hot water is the the Calibra whatever subsidiary of Facebook is going to be located in Switzerland. And so it will be he was saying on uh, on the first day of testimony in front of the Senate, I believe uh, he was saying that was going to be uh, uh, regulated under Switzerland's uh, federal data protection and information commissioner jurisdiction. So it's European. It's Swiss. Like, I, I think just Americans think that's good. I don't I have no knowledge of it, whether that's good, although. Seemingly, it would be under GDPR regulation at that point, which it's not. I don't think is a bad thing. Some you may disagree, but they have some pretty stringent data protection, data privacy rights uh, in Europe, and Switzerland is no exception there. However, saying that, then uh, 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 Switzerland's uh, FDPIC, which is the acronym for the thing I just said, came out and said, "Yeah, Facebook hasn't talked to us about that, so we don't know what they're talking about," and it was. It seemed like just a slip of the tongue, basically saying, oh, yeah, we're we are we are going to it's going to be housed there. So it by law, but under under Swiss law, it has to be regulated under that. It would have been nice if uh, when he said that he had actually said that. And again, speaks to the lack of trust in this whole Facebook thing. So not necessarily a ton of revelations about any kind of rollout, whether whether Facebook is stopping development on that, because, again, there have been numerous uh, bodies, um, whether we're talking about the FTC, whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, European uh, regulators begging Facebook, basically, please, you know, stop development on this until we can come up with basically some policy to regulate it. Because the problem that everyone's having all of a sudden is that even as big as Bitcoin is, and Bitcoin is huge or Ethereum or any of these uh, uh, cryptocurrency or crypto coins or whatever you want to call them, as huge as they are, and, you know, Bitcoin's now worth, again, over $10,000. Ethereum's worth several hundred dollars. There's a lot of value in those things, in those blockchains. Um, they're on a completely different scale of magnitude as to what Facebook could theoretically do if they rolled that out simultaneously to billions of users and make it super accessible, right? You still have to go hunt a little bit if you want to do the whole crypto thing. Quote, I'm doing air quotes there. It's not something that... It's not something that's going to appear that's already on an that an app that's already been installed. So, like, if Facebook turns on Libra overnight, all of a sudden in my parents' Facebook Messenger thing, they're going to have an option to, to use that, right? That's not going to happen with Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other cryptocurrency uh, project right now. And so adding that level of scale, I think, has, has really caught everyone off guard when Facebook announces. Also, props to Facebook for really just not giving a darn. About um, that, the fact that no one trusts them and everyone thinks they have the worst possible motivations for basically everything the company does. I um, and just saying like, yeah, we're going to do we're going to try and do money, too, while we're at it. And so now we're seeing basically regulators and governments across the world kind of reeling at the fact that, OK, we thought we could slow roll this whole crypto thing and kind of wrap our head around it. And, you know, yeah, these 
these geeks and these these weird fringe investors are super into it and we can we can slowly roll out some rules that will impact them and and trial and error and stuff like that oh god facebook wants to do it stop please stop um we will see if that actually happens next up uh we have some interesting updates out of twitter Speaking of social networks, uh, Twitter, if you don't know, several uh, orders of magnitude smaller than Facebook, but I think nonetheless influential. Certainly due in no small part to a certain political figure that chooses to use the platform uh, extensively and occasionally um, for, not occasionally, often for heinous things, It's my opinion. But anyway, they, they announced a couple of interesting new features, basically saying that it can be a toxic cesspool especially if you're someone who is a little uh, little liberal on the follow button. All of a sudden, you can get out there. But it really, all it takes is, I, I think a lot of people don't realize this, all it takes is, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, people say it's it's toxic, it's terrible. And then some people say, well, just just curate your followers list. And then it's it's wonderful. Or turn it on private mode. Well, yes, turning on private mode on Twitter is, or, or you know, invite only or, or whatever mode is fine. You're kind of using a different platform at that point. And I think one of the interesting things about you know, Twitter is it, it is it does have this interesting real time dynamic, and I, I do think it still does serve a, a use. I don't even want to say useful, an interesting purpose that is u- relatively unique in social media, being so close to real time or or occasionally close to real time, depending on how they do their algorithm. But all it takes really is for you to get at mentioned in some weird thread. And for you to engage in that at all, and then all of a sudden you're down some horrible, toxic cesspool of a hole, that can really make it just about the worst. And so I I sometimes think that's a little disingenuous. Or perhaps you are just maybe fit a demographic of someone that isn't prone to harassment on social media and Twitter specifically. So if you are, uh, congrats, uh, but not everybody's that lucky. So there you go. But starting next week uh, in Canada... So we're not seeing this in the U.S., but interesting that they're trying this out anyway. Uh, Twitter is going to start giving the ability to hide replies kind of as a feature. Uh, these won't be removed from Facebook, right? So it's not like you're muting or blocking somebody. You know, these these replies will still be there. Um, it's just kind of hidden from the default you and kind of, again, keeping you from going down this horrible spiral of, of kind of toxic content there. Um, basically, I mean, Facebook came out – or not Facebook. Twitter came out and said – Uh, It knows that uh, distracting, irrelevant, and offensive replies can derail discussions that people want to have. We believe uh, people should have some control over the conversations they start. And that's laudable, but also, I don't know. I I think that soft sells some of the harassment problems that are on Facebook, though still good. Again, keeping that out of your main view so not all of a sudden unexpectedly. You know if you click like that view all replies button. There's the potential that something nasty could be in there, um, but they're at least giving you that option. And then they also are now kind of giving some more context for the old unavailable tweet. I think we've all come across that. If you're if you're on Twitter, you probably at some point have come across being someone making a snarky reply. You go to see what the retweet was or something like that, and you see tweet unavailable. Usually I always assume that those are deleted. Someone was embarrassed or or whatever. Something blew up and they didn't want it uh, out there on the, fa- or on the Twitters. I keep saying Facebook, on the Twitters. Uh, but this will now give some context into why it's been deleted. You know, if someone takes their account private is a, a reason that a, uh, a tweet could, you know, uh, see no longer available. Uh, it's been deleted. 
uh, and then, or it could have uh, contained keywords that have, that you can uh, choose to mute, which I think is a very interesting use case, um, and and might give you some insight into okay, maybe uh, one either the filter is working, in which case kudos, or two maybe this was a little broader than I wanted, you know, maybe this wasn't the content that I wanted, um, and you can have that visibility into it. Also, Instagram uh, announced last week that they're going to be doing some, you know, and, and Instagram kind of has a little a little bit of a different problem. It's a very different use case, but there could still be this huge pylon. Uh, factor going on there. And they announced some changes last week where they were going to be using AI to look at comments as they're being submitted and then essentially pop up a warning that says, hey, this might be offensive. Do you want to post that? And giving people just that second of like reflexivity to go, oh, yeah, I'm a human being. This other person's a human being. Do I want to say this heinous thing? Interesting. And then also doing some more advanced AI to kind of uh, basically doing the hide replies kind of option where putting those behind a click wall where you don't have to see them by default. You have to choose to kind of invoke to go into the cesspool, I guess. So really not 100% changing it, but realizing that, hey, being open to everything all the time is kind of a horrible way to design your network. And I think all of these social networks are realizing that or should have, I mean, should have realized that maybe, I don't know, four or five years ago. But are really starting to see that. And I, I think Twitter is in a unique position, again, because they are much smaller than basically Facebook or or even I think Pinterest is even bigger. But something like YouTube even is, if you consider that a social network, arguably if it is, is it just a much smaller proposition. They're much less profitable than those companies. And, you know, it, every time Twitter's earnings come out, there's always, did they gain users? Did they lose users? That's like never the discussion with Facebook, right? The discussion with Facebook is how many hundreds of millions of people or tens of millions of people signed up this quarter versus last quarter or something like that. Twitter is literally like, we've stemmed the bleeding. So I I understand that they don't want to upset the toxic apple cart in uh, in the concern that everybody may take their ball and go home. We have kind of seen this this trend now of when a company gets too heavy-handed, you know, quote-unquote heavy-handed, uh, or, or gets more stringent enforcing, uh, you know, content policies. We've seen Reddit have this uh, situation example. They've banned certain subreddits on the site. And what that's done is caused communities that think of themselves as victimized, but really are just being horrible people on the internet, uh, going and, and kind of starting their own platforms. I remember, I think it was called Vote, V-O-A-T, like goat, but vote was supposed to be the, you know, the quote free speech. This is, they're always under the banner of free speech. Um, and usually they're all filled with someone of a, of a certain political persuasion. Um, I would say the, the stereotype is that it's whenever an alt-right group is banned on one of these platforms or something like that, or some, they, do, they enforce a content policy that they see as clamping on their free speech. They go and form their own worse version of a social network. And I'm sure that's what Twitter is somewhat worried about. There are some open source alternatives out there that aren't necessarily havens of <laughs> hate speech or anything like that. Uh, one of them is uh, called Mastodon, if I recall. And those are, I mean, they, they feel, I've, I've played around with some of them just because I'm always curious about new platforms and stuff like that. They all feel like science experiments really at this point. But I'm sure it wouldn't take much. It doesn't take that many users to leave to that to demonstrably impact their earnings down the line. And as a publicly traded company that has to, you know, do the whole uh, shareholder value thing, again, 
I'm sure Twitter doesn't want to move too quickly. Although, how hard would it be to make editable tweets? No one would be upset by that ever. Twitter, get on that. Interesting story here about Twitter, uh, or not Twitter, geez, I'm, I'm a story behind on all the company mentions that I'm doing this week. An interesting story on Tinder uh, just dropped uh, over the weekend. Bloomberg picked this up, but it was a security researcher named Ben Schachter. It's a German name, so I don't know how the, uh, the old uh, diphthong pronunciations go there. But he was seeing in, uh, uh, Tinder was doing something interesting with how they're processing payments now. So if you're not aware, anytime you make a transaction in an app that's you know on either Android or iOS, that pretty much always has to use that app store's payment processing features. You know, so it's either the Google Play payment system or the app store, whatever you know, whatever you have there. And you, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, then you don't have to put in your credit card, and you only like you have to trust Apple or Google with your credit card information, which you may not want to do that. That's fine. But those are presumably big giant companies that know how to do security. Scoff, I know. But maybe I trust Google or Apple more than I do Tinder with my payment information, theoretically. Or or if you're dealing with a much smaller app that you don't know is a big giant company and may just be a guy, kind of feels better to go through someone you know. And it certainly has some convenience features as well, right? You don't Again, you don't have to put it in every time. You can just put your thumb on there if you're on an iPhone and boop, it pays for it magically. Yay! And it's done. Also, the the app stores take a cut of those payments, and so they make what I would like to refer to as bags and bags of cash. Not quite Scrooge McDuck vaults of cash, but a lot of the monies. And so what was interesting, what Tinder was doing, is they're still listed in the Google Play Store. They're on iOS and Android. So the app is still in the Google Play Store. But basically what they're doing is giving a new default option that says, hey, why don't you just punch in your credit card? And then we'll process it for you. We're not going to pay Google that cut. Oh, and by the way, once you do this, you no longer can go back to using the Google Play method. Now, you may say, that okay, that seems reasonable. They don't want to pay Google that cut. What's the big deal? Uh, well, that's kind of against the App Store policies, the Google Play Store policies. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering what the what the feedback is going to be from Google on that. If this was a much smaller app, we would never hear the story. Because they would roll that out, Google would take them off the App Store. They'd go, oh my god, I have no distribution now. Immediately re-implement Google Play services, kiss the feet of Google, apologize, and then they'd be on their merry way. We, again, we would never hear this. But this is kind of a trend of these really big apps, Tinder, Spotify was also in the news kind of making hay about this. Essentially saying that the the price you know, the price cuts or the, the percentages that they're paying to these App Stores for processing these payments... And give you know giving the ability to host on that app store, which is effectively a monopoly, especially on iOS. I mean, Google you can install like Amazon has their own app stores, a bunch of app stores you can download. It's a little different situation, but essentially saying like, hey, if I want to reach a mainstream consumer, the only way to do that is with the mainstream app store, and you know, forcing me to go through your payment processing isn't exactly fair. In fact, Spotify has filed a complaint uh, with the European uh, Union. Going after this, and and they they've really just started the maneuvering on that. Um, it's going to take months, if not years, for that investigation to go through. Uh, Apple has already kind of come out and said, "Spotify, wham, 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 uh, shut up and be grateful." In so many words, Tinder is a different situation, though. It 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 shows a little bit of the leverage that these larger publishers have 
in that they're they're kind of too big. They're theoretically too big to delist, right? Because if Tinder goes, there's a lot, I'm sure there are tons of Twitter, a Tinder users on Android and on iOS. Um, you want to know what's a really good way to get someone to switch platforms? Uh, don't have the apps that they want to use on your platform in an easy way, in, a, in an easy and accessible way. Now, if Google does delist them, it's it's not quite as dire as it is on iOS, where essentially you're SOL. On Android, you can sideload apps. You just basically down like on Windows. You know, you would just download the executable file, install it. That's fine. There's a, there's a lot of other problems with that though, because then you don't get security updates. It's just like a weird manual effort. It's not elegant. It's adding. It's asking consumers to take another step, and consumers are. I I don't want to. Be mean to consumers, but consumers are lazy. I'm lazy. I don't want to do that for my apps. I just want them to be in the app store and have one button to click, and it's easy. The, you know, the the other issue though is if Google decides maybe not to upset the Apple Cart there. You know what what is the fallout of that? All of a sudden, if they do that, then you know maybe Spotify goes to, Spotify does the same thing. They still want the distribution of the app store. They just don't want to take that pay cut. And then where does that leave specifically Android, again, which has a more open ecosystem and, and is kind of a little bit more vulnerable to this problem? Interesting, though, that they didn't try this on iOS because I imagine the retribution would be swift and terrible. Now, there was a uh, – basically a spokesperson came out for – they aren't confirming that they're doing this. It looks like right now this is a slow rollout of this to kind of test it and maybe see how far they can implement this without getting the smackdown from Google itself. But basically saying – couching this in the terms of, you know, we want to give consumers, you know, the right to choose their own payment structure and to choose the one that makes us the most money. Also, Coda, you know, side note there. But very interesting, and we've we've also seen this on the gaming front, right? We've seen Epic Games kind of trying to upset the economics of app distribution. In fact, they, you know, if you're not familiar, Epic Games uh, does the Fortnite. So if you know a 13-year-old, um, you know what Fortnite is. And the idea being that, uh, and they, they don't list on some of the app stores for that very reason. They basically said, our app is big enough that we don't need you. People will seek us out. We get to keep all the monies, and everything's good. There are also some other ways to go about this, uh, especially on Android. You can have, if you don't want to use Google Play payments or something like that, you can basically have an app. You click a button, it opens up a web page, and then you go through you know, a web portal to enter in your account information. Still, though, it's just not, it's not seamless. It's not elegant. And I have to wonder how much longer Google can turn it a blind eye to this. And we won't see a story next week that says, you know, Tinder was temporarily delisted, and then they apologize, and da 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 or if they take their ball and go home and say, hey, we're the most popular or one of the most popular dating apps. People want to use us. People get a smartphone so that they can use things like Tinder. They're going to come to us. We're confident in that. Ha, ha, ha. You stink. The Google. Next up, we had some interesting uh, uh, FTC news. Always my favorite. We had the big FTC find of Facebook last week. And that was for a cool $5 billion. And we saw them take some action again uh, this week. It's really more of a settlement. It wasn't like laying down a fine or something like that. This is a settlement, though. If you uh, recall, uh, two years ago, Equifax had that gigantic 
data breach that's kind of compromised uh, both personal and payment information. You know, this this was huge. It wasn't just oh your name, oh, oh just your name and your address and your email address got compromised or something like that, or even passwords to one specific service. Right, the Equifax hack had social security numbers, credit card information, um, you know, credit histories, all that kind of stuff, super damaging information that, you know, is not quite as easy. Not that getting your address out leaked there is, you know, kind of once it's out there, it's out there. But like, theoretically, you could change an email address. You could set up some sort of filter to get around that. Um, You know, your social security number, much harder. That affected 147 uh, million people in uh, uh, the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. So really wide-reaching. And Equifax had kind of, you know, they had uh, put their tail between their legs and said, oh, we're sorry. Um, we know this is going to be this is going to be bad. And I believe as soon as the, the breach happened, they, you know, they were, okay, we're going to do, um, uh, you know, free credit monitoring services for a certain number of years for everybody that was affected by it. And then, you know, we'll deal with the FTC as it goes along. Well, now we know kind of how that's going to shape out. The figure that I'm seeing for the fine is between 575 and 700 million dollars. It all kind of depends on how many payouts and for how long they're going to be doing this credit uh, monitoring systems. But essentially, you're going to be paying out up to 425 million to compensate consumers and to pay for that credit protection services ongoing. Um, I don't know exactly how they're determining what that exact figure will be. I would I would just assume like let's just go on the high end. Seems like Equifax, you did wrong. <laughs> let's just let's just play it safe. Let's just go all out. Uh, but on top of that, there's going to be 175 million paid to 48 states, uh, uh, District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico uh, for various uh, lawsuits they have going on with uh, states. States's attorney generals. I don't know how the plurals work there. And then they've also committed. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. And then they're paying 100 million dollars to the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I'm assuming is to help deal with further complaints, as there is such a there is such a potential for a long tail effect. With this kind of data breach. Also, as part of the settlement, uh, they have to agree to submit to third-party assessments every two years, which, again, seems like the bare minimum of assessments I want of Equifax going forward uh, for the foreseeable future. I didn't see when that would end, uh, but I, I, if it was, like, forever, I would be okay with it. And then they also pledged to, or pledged, or as part of the settlement, said they would invest a billion dollars in their own security. That one feels like more of a sop to me, um, quite honestly. The... They should have the motivation uh, after such a damaging breach for their brand and for like literally their business viability that like they should just want to invest that billion dollars in security. That's money well spent, clearly, um, but they're throwing that in there as if to make it seem worse, I think. When we're looking at in terms of how this stacks up to you know GDPR fines that we've seen, this Facebook fine that we've seen. Um, if we recall, the the Facebook fine represented about 10% of their 2018 revenue, which was about uh, $50 billion, so they got fined $5 billion. Uh, we've seen from that British Airways fine that they had a couple, or that was announced a couple weeks ago, that was a GDPR fine. So that was about 1.5% of their 2017 revenue. And in this one, if it goes up to that $700 million, that would represent about 20% of Equifax's 2018 revenue. So... On the one hand, that's a big percentage when it comes to, you know, uh, the amount of money that Equifax makes versus the amount of money that they're going to pay. Certainly it pales in a raw number to to the, the amount that Facebook is going to be paying. But they make a lot less money than Facebook because they're Facebook. They make all the monies. 
So any fine, I think, is going to look small in comparison to that. Still, I feel like for a service like Equifax, which is a business-to-business service, right? It's a it's a credit reporting agency that consumers really don't have. You know, if if a consumer-focused company had this kind of scale of data breach, for example, if Facebook leaked the social security numbers, somehow they had social security numbers, God forbid they ever do. If they leaked the uh, the social security numbers of 400 million people, as a consumer, you at least have that choice to go, okay, guess what? I'm no longer using Facebook. They're no longer going to get my ad impressions or whatever. I'm going to install ad blockers so they can't track me and keep using that data and stuff like that. I'm going to ask them to delete all my information. Like as a consumer, you have some sort of remediation. Or you, you have some sort of, um, not remediation, you have some sort of, you have a choice to make. You can vote with your feet, as, the, as they say. The market could respond to that. The problem is, is that ultimately, if you're a credit reporting agency, the only thing those other businesses care about is the accuracy of your credit reporting. And that's not really impacted by the leak of data. Like, that's bad for them on, like, a corporate black eye level. And it's bad for them because then they have to, like, deal with the government. And that stinks. That's a real bummer. But I can't choose to be like, no, Equifax, you don't get to use my stuff anymore. I'm taking my I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. I've already used that metaphor, but that's okay. No, instead, like the only the only recourse we have is basically the FTC at this point, right? And so the the question is, is that is that twenty percent, you know, kind of representative of what I could do as a consumer? as what the consumer reaction would be if, if we had any kind of recourse to that, right? And I, I don't think it is. I think 20% is really low um, for the amount of potential damage that this could do. But unfortunately, I don't see any other way really around it at this point. The other thing, though, that I thought was interesting, and this was just announced this morning, um, so there hasn't been a, like a ton of time to get like other reactions to it from the corporate world. But we now we've seen a couple of different uh, uh, fines and and not insubstantial fines, right? The reason like we've never had like a GDPR style regulation in the U.S. is because big businesses have a lot of lobbying power and they don't want to have to do all the compliance that GD- a GDPR style privacy regulation would require. And they don't want to be subject to the fines, which, again, as a reminder, can be up to 4% of worldwide turnover, basically 4% of revenue. But we're looking at fines here. Facebook, 10% of of annual revenue. Uh, Equifax, 20% of annual revenue. So we're looking at fines that are above that from the FTC. And those are in settlements, right? These aren't even things that were taken to court where presumably, if found to be guilty, could be taken even more to the shed. So the question is, why haven't we heard either through you know, politicians, or we haven't heard through, you know, uh, through like maybe business friendly politicians, or why haven't we haven't heard, you know, companies come out and say, these fines are outrageous, you know, uh, you know, let the market respond, right? That's, that's, that's the always the old, the old call. Let the market respond. There's no market that would affect Equifax, but that's okay. And I think it's because, um, you know, the corporate America, big business or whatever is fine for, is theoretically fine with paying these much larger fines for these really, really bad instances of bad data practices or, or insecurity or, or just carelessness with data. And that's really was the case with Equifax, right? 
and they don't want to raise that stink uh, because under a GDPR kind of regime, it's not necessarily the scale of the the leaks and, and the breaches and that kind of stuff. That's the issue. What's more the issue is like the fundamental uh, uh, right to privacy that like consumer data has in Europe at this point. And so, yes, 147 million, you know, corporate America has no problem with Equifax paying 20% of revenue to the FTC as part of uh, as part of that data leak, right? 147 million is is really bad. But what about 14 million? You know, let's take it back a scale. Would you know, 14 million is are we going to do we want to raise a stink because it's a lot more like you're a lot more likely to leak 14 million, you know, the information of 14 million people than you are for 147. What about 1 million people? What about 140,000 people? You know, like putting those in those scales. Yes, for a company like Facebook or, or even Equifax, you know, which basically serves all of uh, the U.S. Yeah, 147,000. That's that's not a lot of people. However, that's, you know, 147,000 people. And to get their, you know, personally identifiable information, especially something like social security numbers, credit card information, that kind of stuff that can really wreck lives wreck careers or or require years to kind of fix um i i think we might be seeing a little bit of a, of a poker face from corporate america at this point saying like basically yes the worst actor should be punished but we're all going to behave in some spectrum of badness and we don't want to rail against this too much to raise the ire of people to enact more stringent privacy regulation at least that's maybe maybe that's my conspiracy theory but it makes sense to me Another thing that makes sense to me is uh, Netflix didn't have a great quarter this past quarter. I don't know if you heard about that. You may have been too busy watching Stranger Things. Evidently, though, not uh, not as many people as uh, Netflix would have liked. They announced for the first time in eight years that they lost U.S. subscribers, which is a pretty big deal for the company. They've been on not necessarily a hockey stick growth, but a, a fairly substantial clip of growth. I remember the plane dealer business section for a long time had like a had like a little section where it was like, you know, a business investor and a like a reporter or just a regular consumer would pick like five stocks that they think were going to perform well. And I just remember the one dude always picked Netflix and it was always like the a good investment, right? It always it always rose up over time, stuff like that. And it's because Netflix have been very successful in their strategy of continuing to add subscribers, basically, and high profitability subscribers like US subscribers who have a very high average revenue per user. For any of these subscription services, that average revenue per user, ARPU, is a very important number. They also uh, added nearly 2 million fewer international customers than they had kind of put out in their guidance, uh, which is another big deal. Now, not they still added internationally, so they, they didn't lose international subscribers, but those are much less valuable customers uh, on a per-dollar basis to Netflix. And so they they overall they grew paid uh, subscribers uh, by uh, 2.7 million. 2.83 of those were international uh, subscribers. So again, not all doom and gloom. I mean, they they're literally adding millions of people, but coming up short to their own and to analyst expectations. And then they now have 151.6 million uh, paid streaming subscribers at the end as of the end of June. And again, they're still a they're still a profitable company. They're they're still raking in they raked in just under five billion dollars in revenue, uh, at earnings of sixty cents per share. So, this isn't you know the end of Netflix as we know. It. But Netflix has been going through 
one, a very aggressive content slate. I mean, anyone that's been on the service knows that there is more content on there that you could, it's not even, there's more content that you could possibly watch. Like it's been that for a long time that they keep adding original content, like Netflix branded original content uh, more than you could ever watch. But it's, it's to the point now where it's like more than you can even like keep up of knowledge that it exists. Like if you just scroll through any one of those weird verticals, it's like sci-fi movies that have cowboy hats. And you'll be like, oh, Netflix made nine films on this and two TV series. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. But they're also now staring down the barrel of kind of this boom of streaming services that are coming out, right? And some of these are, are you know, more successful than others. But, you know, we, we I think we've talked on this show, and it's certainly, I don't think it's any surprise that people are having some subscription fatigue, Right. And there are there are now more streaming options than ever. I mean, you have uh, what CBS All Access, you have uh, you know NBC Universal, Disney, uh, Warner Brothers are all kind of coming out with their own streaming services. You have Hulu being very aggressive. You have YouTube TV. You have Sling TV. Most of these services are coming out with some sort of originals. Um, certainly, the ones that aren't like broadcast TV replacements or cable replacements. Um, I'm thinking specifically like the Disney one is the big one that's coming down the pipe, right? And the other thing is that Netflix itself is is not as inexpensive as it has always been, right? They've raised prices pretty consistently over the past five years um, to the from the point where, you know, it was, okay, it's like price of a cup, two cups of coffee or something, you know, two lattes at Starbucks. It's like, okay, I can like watch The Stranger Things. Okay, that's a fair, fair trade off, right? But not only now are more people subscribed to more things, but... You kind of have, you know, people are kind of, I, I would hope that some people are kind of living the ideal of what all this cord cutting was supposed to be about, right? Instead of having a fixed cable uh, contract, you know, a two-year contract that is expensive to break and is, a, is just a big pain in the butt. You have physical hardware in place. It's literally like you can just, I don't know, go on a web page and unsubscribe and there's no penalty. And then you can leave when Stranger Things is over or whatever sh- whatever your show is. You can go on to Hulu and watch, the, you know, watch Handmaid's Tale and then you get caught up on that and then you... Go to CBS All Access, you watch a little Star Trek or a little um, Twilight Zone. You hop on over to Disney whenever that launches. You binge on some Disney content. You watch some Star Wars series that will be insufferable, I'm sure. And, you know, that, that's kind of the ideal. I mean, the, the problem is, is how, for Netflix, how do you lock in consumers other than through inertia? And I don't want to underlie inertia. As I said, I am a profoundly lazy human being. I have no problem admitting that. And I imagine a lot of other people are. There is, for years, for example, AOL still made money off dial-up consumers, not because, not based off of usage. If you looked at their usage numbers of dial-up, they were consistently down, down, down every year. But it was, people were like, it was like five ninety nine a month or something like that for like the most basic tier of service. And people just kind of forgot that it was on their statement and AOL just made money off that. I'm sure there are some people, there are many people like that on Netflix. That if they evaluated actually how much they watch per month, they'd be like, is this, I don't know if this is worth it. But it's, you know, it's still a a relatively affordable amount of money. I think any of these are. But as we keep adding more and more of that, you know, it's, it's one thing if it's just Netflix that you're paying for. But when it's Netflix, it's whatever, uh, you know, it's HBO Now, it's uh, CBS All Access. All of a sudden, you know, that goes from being $10, $12, $15 a month to... 30, 40, 50, 60 dollars a month. And then it's like, okay, why did I why did I cut cable to begin with? 
if I'm going to be paying this much. And I think that's kind of what they're running into. The other big thing, though, is they have some content problems that they're going to have. Now, Netflix has known this is coming for a long time. Way back, I want to say it was like 2010, 2011, they lost their contract with Stars to do a lot of movie streaming. It used to be like Netflix streaming was like, oh, well, instead of getting the DVDs of movies that I liked, I'll just do the streaming thing, and they have some of the catalog on the streaming, and it's just easier, and I can watch movies. That's cool. And that's what everybody kind of thought it was. They thought it was a replacement for Blockbuster. When Netflix knew they, were gonna, they weren't going to be able to renew that Stars contract or were going to lose that content, they realized, and they, I'm sure they realized this beforehand as well, that they needed to invest in original content to kind of peak, that they had control of, that they couldn't have it taken away from. And, you know, the, the, the first steps of that were, it was a relatively modest rollout. It was like a big deal when Netflix came out with a new series. I remember the first one, I think it was called Lily Hammer, something like that. And then House of Cards was kind of the first hit that they had. And then the, it's just kind of exploded since then, again, to the point where you basically cannot keep up with just knowledge of the titles of them. And that's probably why they're not a more, like on a per share basis, not a more profitable company. I'm sure if they scaled that back that ambition, they could still raise a decent amount of subscribers. But it's a long-term bet so that when they start losing content contract, when they lose stars, when they lose stuff, from, uh, you know, they lose all the Star Trek or uh, all the Star Wars stuff when Disney launches their own service. That people aren't scrolling through their queues or scrolling through the interface and going, hey, there's nothing to watch. Oh, no, it's still full of stuff. It's just mostly Netflix branded stuff. But even with that strategy, uh, a recent analyst had looked at their catalog and saw that about 60 to 65 percent of their of the viewing hours of Netflix is made up of content from NBC Universal, Disney Fox, which is the same thing now. And Warner Brothers. That's kind of a problem. And I know there's been a lot of hand-wringing about The Office. I'm like not an Office dude, but I know it's a, it's a big deal. And that is going to be going, I believe, to that uh, NBC, Universal, whatever whatever streaming hellscape that emerges out of uh, is going to be on that service. Um, so big problems, uh, not necessarily big problems, uh, a changing landscape for Netflix and it's not surprising to see them uh, actually lose U.S. subscribers. Do I think they're in they're in trouble? No, but this is like a change in gears for what the company has expected uh, for a while. The last thing I wanted to talk about um, was this whole. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about, at maybe some length, is this whole Face App kerfuffle. Uh, Face App's been around since 2017. I. I've played with, I've installed it and uninstalled it several times. Um, it's not a big deal. I'm not cool. I just, I just like weird apps, I guess. And it's always funny to me that it seems like every six months people remember that it's a thing and like start posting pictures. And I did it too. I took the, did the old, old person filter and saw what I look like as an extremely aged person. And I, I just, I told my wife, I said, I'm so sorry. This is, this may be what you're going to look at, um, in a couple decades. And then after the tears uh, welled up um, and we kind of cleared those away, I was looking on the internet and I saw a bunch of people uh, kind of with these hand-wringing editorials or, or stories that aren't really stories. Um, it's been out there for a while that FaceApp is owned. Um, you know, the parent company for FaceApp is a Russian-based company. Um, and there's been a lot of, you know, it's very popular now, I guess, to, to, be, to be skeptical, no, suspicious of anything coming from Russia, especially from like a user privacy business perspective. And that's not unwarranted, right? You should, I, I'm actually kind of encouraged that like people can care 
about where their data is stored and what companies are doing with that. But what what kind of made me step back a second is they were quoting from the uh, FaceApp terms of service. I guess if you haven't heard of FaceApp, if you've been off social media, FaceApp is is basically just a it's a, a series of photo filters, right, where you can make yourself look old or young or put makeup on or change your hair color. It uses some some of the stuff uses some interesting um, machine learning to uh, to do that. I'm pretty sure that's how they do the old people filter. Um, some of it's really bad. If you'd ever do any of the hair color stuff, it's horrible. It just like literally is like an MS paint. Like someone went over and just like made your hair black or blonde or whatever. But the old age and the young stuff is interesting. I don't know if it's good, but it's interesting. And, and some of it looks relatively convincing. The uh, Again, the, the whole kerfuffle is that, oh, this is Russia's based company. And then they have this this horrible line in this terms of service where they're like, for whatever reason, what or uh, uh, FaceApp can access all your photos and use them for whatever purposes and sell them to other people. And we can sell your name and sell your likeness. Da, 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 da. And everyone was like, oh, no, what have I agreed to? I have no privacy left anymore. I sold my soul to FaceApp so I could look old. I didn't even sell it to look good. Um, the problem is, is if you look at those terms of service, they're pretty much boilerplate for any service that uses, uh, not any service, but a ton of different photo services that use your likeness that basically say, Hey, by uploading it, guess what? Um, if we want to, we could run a whole ad campaign using your face and you don't get anything because you uploaded it to Instagram or you uploaded it to WhatsApp or you upload. I'm, I'm picking on Facebook properties now, but there are any number of apps that have similar, if not worse or more restrictive language. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a cottage industry among journalists. I, I think they, they, they read through the terms of service and just wait to like when it's a slow news day to be like, okay, let's spring this horrible terms of service on. And the reason we don't see it more often is in general, terms of service are like the most unreadable things that I have ever seen. I want to say the terms of service for like Mac OS or iOS, I, I want to say borders on like 88 pages. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure of that, but it's like a, a amount of text that would be impractical to read, especially when they essentially like, Oh, do you accept the terms of service? Click scroll to the bottom automatically. Like you clearly are never going to read this except done. And so on the one hand, it makes me a little skeptical of news outlets or, or anybody that's kind of doing the or Russia bad be you know, be terrified because a Russian company now can do this, but you're granting it to any number of companies that just, I mean, the entire point of most of these services is to make money off the data you provide them, right? And in that regard, WhatsApp isn't even the worst offender because at least they offer a paid service where presumably the a substantial amount of their revenue comes from or a significant, I don't know, substantial, significant amount of revenue comes from. So at least like there's the possibility that they don't need to fully exploit all of the data from you because someone is paying to use their service to unlock certain features. Um. And the fact that we're not more skeptical, that we're not seeing these same stories, I, I would take it in stride more if I saw this story every time, you know, any any number of popular apps. I'm sure Candy Crush has, like, the like the worst terms in their terms of service. Um, but we just kind of take that for granted. All right, we're running low of time here on your weekly tech news hour. Um, be sure to uh, give us a like. Uh, we created, I created a, we created, um, using the Royal Week because it's just me here. Uh, we created a Facebook page so you can check that out. Just search for uh, Weekly Tech News Hour 
and you will find that there. We do we're doing live streams there every single week, so I'm live streaming right now. Hi, uh, for the person <laughs> watching on the live stream, appreciate that. But you can check it out later there as well as well as in the podcast feed. You can also find me uh, on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's M R Anthropology, and uh, and we'll be we're here every Monday. But a couple uh, a couple quick stories that I wanted to run down. Um, there was uh, a story of uh, Apple getting serious about podcasts, which I thought was interesting. They're going to be doing possibly some branded um, content where they're 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 working with studios to put forth like Apple branded podcasts. Um, podcasts have kind of been those things that I think a lot of creators have been like, please Apple. Keep forgetting that you have this and don't mess with it. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize that like podcasts aren't just an Apple thing, but 50 to 70 percent, depending on who you ask, uh, of all podcast downloads come from Apple. So they wield enormous influence on the industry. They just happen to have kind of a, a light hand on the wheel. And the idea of them kind of blessing certain ones and not blessing other ones is a little problematic. We had uh, uh, gaming phones. Uh, Asus put out a new gaming phone. Um, gaming phones aren't a thing, but... Really high refresh rate screens on smartphones are. We'll talk about that later. Uh, there's a new smart diaper system from Pampers, which is the worst thing I've ever seen in a sign of the end times. And um, it's not that hard. It's like, if it, has it been two hours since you changed a diaper? You need to change a diaper. Spoiler. Uh, I don't know who needs this. Uh, it is a way to exploit new parents, which uh, is very easy to do. And the city of Orlando ended a face recognition test with police because they didn't have enough bandwidth to stream all the cameras at once, which is both... Uh, terrifying that they were trialing that but also hilarious that uh bad internet infrastructure not only affects consumers but it affects cities and that'll bring us to the end of your weekly tech news hour for this week thank you so much uh for listening checking it out really uh, appreciate it uh like i said uh check us out uh, with the facebook group uh, find me on twitter you can also if you want to hear more technology news i also am uh, do a podcast with uh tom Merritt and sarah lane called uh daily tech headlines i do very literal names for my tech shows and uh, that's a five-minute rundown of the tech news, so um, about one-twelfth the length of this show. And that works out really well. Make sure you stay tuned for Not Your Grandmother's Classical Music. If you're listening live, you can check that out at WRUW.org. If you're not listening live, you want to check it out in the cyberspace. So until the next time we meet everybody, remember, have a super sparkling day.